Amen. Would you please open up your Bibles and find your way to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. In my last three sermons, I have been building upon the biblical language of ambassadorship and the related imagery of embassy to this word ambassador or ambassadorship. I've been been building on that biblical language of ambassadorship that we find inside of the Scripture that is applied to us as believers. We're, We're told in the Bible that we are ambassadors. Ambassadors serve in embassies, and so the church is... Uh, pictured in a way as a kind of embassy uh, in this age, in this earth. We are an embassy, and here at this embassy we need to see ourselves as ambassadors. Uh, By way of introduction, let's briefly revisit this language of ambassadorship and imagery of embassy. By way of introduction, let's revisit, because I want to continue building in today's sermon on on this imagery uh, uh, of embassy. This will be the final installment of of what will altogether be four parts of of a series on the church as embassy. The title of my sermon today is Embassy Organized. Embassy Organized. And in this message, we are going to study the objectives and the order of the church of Jesus Christ as an embassy of God's kingdom in the earth. By way of introduction, quickly, let's review what we've covered thus far in previous messages. In part one, entitled Kingdom Embassy, we explored the metaphor, meaning, and mattering of the ambassador motif in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as it is applied to us as believers and to us as a church. Now, an embassy is a place in a given land that represents a foreign land. It has a body of diplomatic representatives at an embassy that are known as ambassadors. The ambassadors are from that foreign land who are sent to work there in that embassy as representatives of that foreign nation, okay? So so though the embassy is in this foreign land, those who are sent there to serve at that embassy are then representing that nation, and though they're in that foreign nation, that little piece of land, that embassy, when you walk into it, it's like you're walking into a piece of that other land. It's like a, like a porthole that, that, that you walk into, and now that soil in that foreign land represents the other land. This is really helpful when we think about what it is that we're doing as a church. The church is an embassy. We're representing a foreign land, and there's a sense in which when people enter the church, they're, they're, they're experiencing that foreign land. The Bible describes believers as citizens of heaven, we are, we're citizens of another, of another place. And so we're foreigners, the Bible describes the believer, Peter does, as, as foreigners, as strangers, as aliens in this land, for we are citizens of another place. More than citizens, we have been called to be ambassadors. We, we are representatives of the kingdom that is to come. We represent the heavens above and the earth below. And so that was part one, kingdom embassy. In the second installment of this series, I offered a message entitled Ambassador Affluenza. In this sermon, we studied the parable of Luke 16, reflecting on the stewardship role that believers have been given in this age, which I applied to the ambassador motif. In this rich parable of our Lord, Luke 16, we were challenged to see the tragedy of those who are not enjoying and investing and using what they have been given in Christ. 
Rather than being active ambassadors, many allow a kind of spiritual affluenza to get them off course. Instead of being faithful ambassadors where the Lord has, has placed them, the Lord placed you here, uh, many, they, they don't see that the Lord has placed them where they are, and they squander their calling. And that passage in Luke 16 really gets at that. It's a sobering wake-up call to the believer as you hear your Lord speak to you and, and remind you, I placed you there to steward what has been given to you, and, and I will return, and will you be found faithful in what has been given to you? That was part two, Ambassador Affluenza. In part three of this series, we considered the spiritual dimension of, of this kind of affluenza, of, of squandering what has been given to us. And we explored the spiritual dimension uh, to, to, to remind ourselves that, hey, hey, look, what's going on here isn't just our stewardship and just, uh, you know, doing what we're supposed to be doing as ambassadors or whatever, but there's, there's something else going on. There's a spiritual dimension that is working against us all the time. There's warfare of demons and dark principalities that come against the embassy of Christ. I titled this message last week, Embassy Under Fire, and, and, and gave illustrations of, of contemporary context where we've, we've seen our embassies of the United States around the world un, under fire. We, we know what it is to be an embassy under fire. We've, we've seen that in our, in, in this year, in fact, we've seen our embassies under attack. When we study Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, we see that he was aware of the spiritual dimension, and the spiritual dimension was aware of him. Demons were aware of where the Lord was walking and working. They, when, when they saw him coming, they, they, they were fully aware. And we looked at the ministry of Jesus as an exorcist, his casting out forces of darkness. We saw in the book of Acts and in the Gospels how Jesus passed that ministry of exorcism and, and his power and his authority onto his ambassadors. Again, ambassadors are representing something foreign, and we as his church represent him by his authority and with his power. Like embassies in hostile foreign lands today that face enemy fire, those embassies will, will have military there. They, they have a military mindset, in fact. And so as an embassy in a foreign land, we need to be aware that we are under fire and we need to live accordingly. The scripture reveals that God's people are surrounded by, by angels and also by demons. Uh, demons who are gathering intel to divide the, the embassy of Christ and to derail our mission. They watch us. We saw that in the gospel accounts. Demons watching God's people. Demons watching in order to divide and derail. They see. They, they see relationships. They see where relationships can be strained. They can move to divide. They hear. They watch. They listen. They see when bad ideas cre creep in, and they can exploit those and expose those and manipulate those. They, they are at work. They gather intel, and they are very good at it. We have in our, in our church a, a brother who served overseas at an embassy for the States doing ambassador stuff, and after last week's message, he, he, he was sharing with me about how when they're at the embassy and they have meetings, before they go into their special meetings, they all have to take their cell phones and put them in these special boxes so, so that there's nothing that can listen to the conversations they're having. The stakes are that high. And these, 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 these phones are, are they're always listening to us. So we got, we got to put these away and, and we got it because we don't want anyone listening to get any intel that can compromise the embassy and its work. 
Sometimes the way these things listen to us is kind of helpful, though. You know, it'll be like, oh, you, you want to buy this. I do want to buy that, you know. And then I will put that in my cart and make sure I do the smile thing so it gets a donation. And then later on, I'm having a conversation about, I don't know, some tennis shoes or something. And then, um, oh, those, those are the tennis shoes. Hey, that's convenient. Pink, pink, you know. They're always being listened to. And that's an illustration as well of we're always being listened to. If you live your life thinking that all, that, all of reality is only what your eyes can see, you, you, you have set yourself up to be, to be the prey of the devil. He's going to prey on you and take advantage of, of, of that dilapidated worldview of, of everything that, that, that is real is just physical. No, no, no. There's more than matter going on in the cosmos. There's more than matter that is going on in the embassy. And where, where, you see, where you see the enemy on the move, he's always going to leave a trail, a trail of, of division, discord, death, disease, destruction, darkness. That's what he leaves in his path. And we need to have eyes to see, and we need to, to claim the name of Christ to cast out these forces of darkness that would, would derail the church. Now that said, what does it mean to be derailed? Well, how we answer that question involves what we think our mission is. What is an embassy supposed to be doing? In terms of embassies today, the primary purpose of an embassy is to, uh, in the case of the United States, an embassy overseas uh, serves to assist American citizens who travel or live in that host country. The United States Foreign Service officers also will interview citizens from the host country who want to travel to the United States for business, education, or tourism purposes. That's what embassies do. That's the primary purpose of embassies in in their work overseas. Well, what is the primary purpose of this embassy? Jesus' embassy here at Delray Church. What, what, What is our primary purpose? Well, it comes from Jesus. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus commissioned his disciples with our primary purpose, and that's why I asked you to open your Bibles to Matthew 28. It's right here in front of us in Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission. This Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his disciples to be his ambassadors in the earth. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. This commission here in Matthew 28 is repeated in Luke 16, 15, or excuse me, Mark 16, 15, Luke 24, 48 through 49, John 20, 21, and Acts 1, 8. It's repeated in all the Gospels and the book of Acts. You're going to go and you're going to make disciples. That's the marching orders of, of, of Jesus' followers, his ambassadors who would give birth to his church, his embassy. This is what the embassy needs to be about, making disciples, teaching people to obey him, bringing people to him, people getting saved by him, being baptized, identified with him, being saved by him and being taught his way. And that goes out in multiplication. More disciples. Disciples making disciples. Now, with the marching orders before us, let's now get into uh, the the purposes of the embassy. The ordering of the embassy is what I want to get at in today's message, and hence the title of today's message, Embassy Organized. Would you turn from Matthew 28 and find your way to the book of Titus? And this gets us uh, out of introduction into this first point, a point about order. 
Embassies have order. What is the order of this embassy, of Christ's church? Uh, organizations require order. We see order described in the Bible for the embassy of Christ, for his churches. In the book of Acts, which is a book in the Bible that gives us the history of the church, we see these churches were ordered. We see, we see the order described in the book of Acts, and we see the order prescribed in the letters of the New Testament, what we call the epistles. If you have turned to Titus or are still turning to Titus, Titus is that. It's an epistle. It's a letter. It's written by the historic apostle Paul to uh, the church leader, Titus. And, and in these epistles, what we call the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, you have letters to leaders of the church talking about the, the operations, the order, the offices of the church. The other epistles that we have outside of the pastoral epistles like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and so on, those are letters to the churches that also contain some things about order and officers. But these pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, in particular, really get at today's topic, the organization of the embassy. Titus chapter 1, draw your eyes at the text. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even His word, in the proclamation with which I was uh, entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Okay. So Paul, he sees himself as a, a bondservant. Paul here, he speaks of Christ. Paul here starts the letter focusing on the truth of God revealed in Christ and that proclamation that they have been given. This goes back to that commission. Go therefore, Jesus said to his disciples. Make disciples. Baptize them in my name. Proclaim me. Train them. Draw your eyes at the text. He says in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and you would appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. Set in order. Paul is, is writing, he's, he's writing this, and he's saying to Titus, look, there's things that the embassy has to have in order. And specifically the order here, and we'll get to it later in the message, relates to the, the officers of, of this organization, the church. Uh, scholars believe this letter was written between Paul's first and second Roman imprisonments. So Paul has literally been tied up. But he wants to make sure that the church has things in order. As you keep reading the opening chapter here of Titus, the letter places an urgency on raising up leaders. And, and we're gonna, uh, we'll spend some time talking about that, specifically pastors or overseers, to look after the people. That's a part of the order of the church. But before we get into the pastors and their role in the embassy, let me say something about the people, which brings us to our next point on the outline. We talk about the order of the embassy. Uh, to understand the order of the embassy, you have to understand that the embassy is made up of the people while I'm talking about the order of the embassy, I need to be clear, though, that the, the, the church is more than order and organization. The church is an organism. We're a living thing. The church is the people of God, saved by the Son of God, gathered together and baptized in the Spirit as one body. This body that is alive is, is an embassy for God's kingdom, making us ambassadors as, 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 
as we're carrying his, his, his message together. It's for all of us. We need to be mindful, though, that as ambassadors, we're, we're more than ambassadors because of our calling. Our diplomatic duties are not just diplomatic, they're priestly. We've been given a priestly role as ambassadors. We're not just representing a foreign land. We're placed in this foreign land to do something that is priestly. The Apostle Peter told the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, you guys are priests. He had just finished talking about Jesus with temple imagery. Let me put this passage in front of you. He had just finished talking about Jesus with temple imagery, and then he moves in to talk about the church, the embassy of Christ, as a holy priesthood. You see that, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5? You are a holy priesthood. A priesthood offers spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're to be worshiping, offering sacrifice. He describes the church again in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You're ambassadors, yes, but... Your job as an ambassador is to do something priestly. Here in the passage that's in front of you, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, you see he invokes Isaiah 28, 16, and Psalm 118, verse 22, to give imagery of the church so that they would see themselves as a priesthood. Their orders as ambassadors are to be priests, more than diplomats, more than government stuff. It's priestly stuff. Embassies help people from foreign lands who want to travel to their homeland, as I, as I said. And so, too, we help foreigners and spiritual aliens travel somewhere better than a place we bring them to God. We do this through the good news of Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And through it, God makes spiritual foreigners citizens of heaven and His kingdom to come. The work of the priest is a work of service, specifically serving as intermediaries between God and humanity. God and humanity are at odds with each other. God created the world to know His love. He created humanity in His image to to mirror Him in the creation, but humanity rebelled against their Creator. As a result, the life that was given to humanity is reversed in death. The harmony that was given to humanity It it, it devolves into disharmony and dysfunction. The creation that was made for life and love and harmony, it it becomes the antithesis of this. And so the role of the priest is to be a a mediary between the two, to, to, to bring about reconciliation from fallen humanity to the holy God. In fact, we saw this when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. When Paul used that ambassador language in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, when he used that ambassador language, he said this. He described our work this way. Let me quote, as though God were making an appeal through us be reconciled to God. So the embassy is a place where priestly ambassadors are being equipped for their priestly calling in a fallen world. The calling of the priesthood is not for a select few. It is for everyone who is in the embassy. Being that it is October, it is the perfect time to think about this. October is the month where we think about the Protestant Reformation. 
that sought to reform the errors of Roman papalism, which had at that point hijacked Christians in the West. In this Reformation, men and women gave their lives. They gave their lives. They bled out and died and were tortured in horrible ways. They gave their lives in order to exercise their rights as priests of our God and King, Jesus the Christ. October 1517, the Reformation revved up with the posting of the 95 Theses of Martin Luther. If you don't know much about this era, look on your outline in the questions section. I have a helpful article on Bible.org link there for you to read this week and discuss. Suffice it to say, in this era and in the area of Rome, certain powers had convinced believers against Scripture that there were two kinds of Christians. You see, there were the ordinary Christians and then there's the special priestly Christians. The special one serves as as priests and nuns and and monks, like Martin Luther. He, in fact, was, was a monk. The ordinary ones were under their hierarchy. You've got the special priestly Christians, and then you have just the regular ones. One historian notes, and I quote, In returning to Scripture, the Reformers found that such a distinction is illegitimate. It is not that they rejected the distinction between clergy and laity. Rather, the Reformers rejected a distinction that said the clergy are closer to God than the laity. The service to God on the part of lay people is just as acceptable to the Lord as the service to God on the part of Christian ministers. God is not uniquely accessible to the clergy in a way that He is not accessible to lay people. Instead, all have direct access to the Creator through Christ. And everything that is done in His name according to His law is truly and fully honorable in His sight. This understanding, commonly known as the priesthood of all believers, is rooted in such texts as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which tells us the new covenant community is a royal priesthood. That's exactly what you have in front of you right here in Peter, reminding us that our job as ambassadors is a priestly job. That's what you have in front of you in Titus. It, it, it reminds you, it, what does it say? You are chosen of God. All of you. All of you are chosen. There's no distinction among the ambassadors at the embassy. There's no more special ones or more holy ones or more priestly ones. We've all been called to this. The calling and the work is given to us all. Make disciples. Teach people to obey Christ. Live for Christ. Look at how Paul ends the letter. We've been looking at the beginning of it, and in today's message we'll be surveying these pastoral epistles. Turn the page. It's a short letter. Look at how he ends this. Chapter 3, verse 12. When I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds and to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith, and grace be to you all. The way Paul writes this pastoral epistle gives us the idea that the mission of the embassy is for everyone. You see how the churches are working together for the good of the city in these letters. You see the names of those sacrificing and laboring. Uh, There's not titles slapped in front of them. They're, They're just names. You see the normality in the names. In fact, Zenus, it's noted that he's a, he's a lawyer. He's just a guy with a, with a regular job. And he's using his job, his vocation for ministry, as all of us should. As all of us should. I'm looking around this room, I'm seeing people who are involved in lots of different vocations. 
from, from streets to the offices, blue collar, white collar, entrepreneur, company man, uh, all the way down the line. And all of those vocations get used as a part of our work as ambassadors who've been given a priestly calling. Paul is not alone. Titus is not alone. You got Artemis. You got Tychicus. You got Apollos. You got Titus. There's also Timothy. In fact, let's, let's turn. We're in uh, Titus. Let's go to 2 Timothy, the book just in front of it. Please turn to 2 Timothy. Paul begins in verse 1 of 2 Timothy talking about Jesus, just like he began Titus. Notice in verse 1, he says Jesus' name twice in that one verse. Then in the second verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he brings up Jesus again. And what does he speak of? Grace and mercy and peace. You see that? In chapter 2, verse 1, go to chapter 2, verse 1, he speaks of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And, 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 and it's the language here. It's grace. This is what we celebrate in the Reformation. Sola gratia. We're, we're saved by grace and not by works. It is the gift of God given to us by faith, a gift that God gives to you. Faith through His grace. So he speaks of the grace that is in Christ, chapter 2, verse 1. He's, he, he's, he, he speaks of, of this powerful work of God in giving us this gift of faith. Paul speaks of the Father, clearly showing that he believes that the Father was gracious in Christ. For upon the Christ, the Father would pour His wrath to save us. The Christ would take our place and take the wrath that we deserve and, and stand there, hang there on the cross in our place. Notice in, in verse 9, he speaks of salvation in verse 9. He speaks of, of salvation. He saved us. He called us. He gave us a holy calling. He gave us a holy calling. Chapter 1, verse 9, look at it. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to His own purpose and the grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This, 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 is, this is Reformation stuff. This is election. This is providence. This is grace. Look, look, salvation is not deserved. You don't have this coming. The holy Creator God and fallen humanity rebelling against Him. You, you don't deserve life. You deserve death. You don't deserve blessing. You deserve curse. As sinners and breakers of God's law, we don't, we don't deserve anything. We, we don't deserve heaven, let alone pardon and a life-giving relationship with God the Father through God the Son. But by grace, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we're, we're, we're pardoned because He took the penalty. We're, we're, we're pardoned and paid for. 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 15 speaks of salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Sola fide. Sola gratia. It's faith alone. It's grace alone. Solus Christus is Christ alone. Paul rightly emphasizes that it's not by works, but by faith, and that faith is a gift that comes from God. Look at verse 5 and see how he speaks of, of, of faith being within Chapter 1, verse 5, faith being within Timothy. You see the language there? He speaks of, of, of faith dwelling in his grandmother and his mother and, and faith coming into him. Faith is, is, is foreign. Faith is alien. It's something that has been placed inside of you that makes you right with God. It's not something that Timothy mustered up. Timothy wasn't sitting there one day in church going you know what, I'm going to make a decision to believe that stuff. No, 
No, that would be you deciding to do something, in which case you earned it. You made the right decision to think a particular way. That's not what salvation is. In your depravity, you would never receive this. You would never believe this. The message of the cross, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But then all of a sudden, a light goes off. The Spirit comes in. Your eyes see Him. Your ears hear Him. We, we read in the public reading of Scripture today from John's Gospel, and, and what did Jesus say? He says, the, the sheep hear me and they know my voice. They hear Him. They see Him. That's not because of them. It's because of the gift of salvation. We, 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 we see in the text Paul describing the, the, the Spirit. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. The Spirit dwelling in us. This is a work of regeneration in us. The Spirit comes and draws us in repentance and faith. The Spirit further propels us on mission as ambassadors to proclaim the God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. To proclaim the work of the Son who incarnated Himself and died in our place. To proclaim the work of the Son who ascended into heaven as the heavenly priest for His earthly priesthood who sent His Spirit to birth the embassy and to make us not only children of God, but ambassadors of God with a priestly calling. He saved us from sin and then by the Spirit calls us into the ministry as ambassador priests. Notice in verse 9 of, of chapter 1 here that saving and calling are tied together. Look at verse, eight, look at verse 18. He speaks of services and referring to ministry happening that, 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 that Timothy was well aware of. This is a letter from a man in jail for Christ who is eager to get out and to see the very thing that got him in jail happen again, namely the preaching of Jesus Christ. He writes to Timothy, stay on mission. Stay at the embassy. Die for the embassy. Be ambassador priests who are reconciling that whole city to me. He writes to show the church their, their, their mission. He, he writes these pastoral epistles to equip the leaders because otherwise you will drift, you'll get discouraged, you'll start looking at other things, and you'll abandon ship. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he tells them, retain the standard of sound words. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He writes about teachings, things that you have heard from me, he says, and he tells them to entrust those to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's discipleship. It's passing down. Now, speaking of teaching and sound doctrine, this leads us to the next point. We see that we are the priesthood and we see the principles or the doctrines that have been secured that the embassy is supposed to be about. Paul wants the embassy to know the Scripture and the doctrine that comes from Scripture. He charges Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, to accurately handle the word of truth. In chapter 3, he warns uh, about those who are veering from the truth, and he tells them, stay away from those knuckleheads, and instead be devoted to the teaching of God's word. In verse 10, he says, you followed my teaching. Now continue in the way. In verse 14, he continues the, the theme of embassy as a, as, a, as a learning community. As a learning community. You, however... You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and, and become convinced of. This is chapter 3, verse 14. Continue in the things. Continue in these things. These things that, that have been taught to you, these principles, continue in these things. He tells them in verse 16 of 
chapter 3, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. These are the principles. The embassy is centered on the word. The embassy is centered on the doctrine that comes from the word. The word is alive. The word is inspired by God, and its aim is to train ambassadors for work at the embassy. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, in verse 2, Paul says what? Preach the word. In verse 1, he reminds the readers that Jesus is coming back. You see that? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. He's coming back. That reminds you, you're an embassy. You're representing a foreign kingdom that is to come. And so how we represent him is being his priest ambassadors who are preaching his word, and through the preaching of his word, the lost get saved, the saved get, get trained and discipled, and through the preaching of his word as well, it will expose sin. He tells the church to preach the word, look at verse 2, in season, out of season, and then what does he say next? Reprove and rebuke. So this, so this leads us to the next point, the prideful discipline. We see the priesthood, the principles, and the prideful discipline. There's going to be rebuking. There's going to be messiness at the embassy. The embassy is under external spiritual attack, as we've seen, and there's also going to be internal mess. That's the nature of things. Because as the Lord is saving people, they come into the church and they need to experience discipleship. They come in the waters of baptism. They, they learn of His Word and they begin to grow and things in the world are going to find a way into the church. And so, so that's, but that's what we're supposed to be doing, reconciling people, working in the mess. He cautions them in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Look at verse 3. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. He says, hey, look, like, so you know, like, when you're ministering the Word and you're, you're living as my priest, trying to reconcile people to God and represent Him as ambassadors, it, it's, it's going to be messy. There's going to be people who don't want to hear sound doctrine. There's going to be people who don't want to change their lives. There, there's going to be people who, who are just hanging out around the embassy to you know, to get some goodies off, off the counter. You know, I heard they're giving out sweets and treats. They're just hanging out to get stuff or whatever. You, you, you have to, you have to continue on. Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 18, something we refer to as church discipline, how to, how to deal with sin in the embassy when it surfaces. These epistles that we're reading this morning are a lot like an employee handbook for ambassadors. And it instructs us on how we're to conduct ourselves, the, the organization, how, how we are to do this. It further reminds us that we're under fire, and so we, 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 we need to be mindful of the attacks out there and also the ones that come inside and, and be ready. And the Word prepares us for this. The eternal issues that come into churches are painful, no doubt. These epistles are preparing the church for this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writes about a former friend in the church. You see this? A former friend in the church. There's a guy named, there's a guy named Demas. Verse 10. Look at verse 10. And he says that Demas, having loved this present world, deserted me and has gone off. In his writings, Paul warns that the embassy is going to face the lure of comfort and temporary wealth. 
You've been placed in this foreign land, right? And sometimes you walk off the embassy and you start going, hey, it's nice out here. Maybe I'll settle into this. That appears to be what happened to Demas. He abandoned his ambassadorship with the embassy. Meanwhile, meanwhile, this internal pain and this loss of his friend Demas, uh, Paul is also writing to, to caution Timothy about those external assaults. Look at verse 14 here in chapter 4. Verse 14 and 15, he mentions a guy named Alexander who vigorously opposed our teaching. Yeah, we're we're going to get attacked. It's going to be inside. It's going to be outside. People are going to walk away. It's going to be discouraging. They're going to go to the comforts of the world. It's going to happen. It's going to hurt. If you've served overseas, you know that. You've got members on your team and some, you know, people leave and it, it can be hard. But look, you are my priests. You are my ambassadors. I have placed you there for good things. Be encouraged. Notice how the letter ends. It ends with encouragement. It ends with the names of ambassadors on his side. Though under fire from outside, though facing stressful matters from within, the Lord had given Paul and Timothy a team. Look at, look, at, look at these closing verses here. Verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. You've got Prisca, Quilla, Onisphorus, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and more. Notice in verse 18, Paul's hope for the heavenly kingdom to come. Again, reminding them, you're stationed there, you represent a foreign land, the kingdom, you're an outpost of the kingdom, you're an embassy, your labors are not in vain. I am with you. And I'll bring people to serve in the embassy who will be there with you. Okay, so we've surveyed Titus. We've surveyed 2 Timothy. We've reflected on some matters of order for the embassy. As well, we've reflected on Peter's priestly language to help us to understand that our ambassadorship is priestly in nature. Peter says what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, which I reminded you of, that ambassadors are reconcilers, just like priests. So the priest and the ambassador metaphor then work together. We're not any old ambassadors, we're priestly ones. Having surveyed Titus and, and, and 2 Timothy with these highlights from Peter and 2 Corinthians 5, now let's turn to the book in front of 2 Timothy, which, surprise, surprise, is 1 Timothy, and let's get on to, to the next point, a point about offices. These points are going to begin flying faster than these introductory comments that I made in terms of the order. Now we move to the offices. By way of background to 1 Timothy, it was written during the 60s to this church leader, Timothy. Uh, he was placed in charge, Timothy was, of a very difficult embassy in Ephesus. So we've seen some of that as we were reading 2 Timothy. Uh, I didn't pause to give you the background there, but now hopefully it, it makes sense. There was a lot of difficulties going on. There were people who didn't like their church. Uh, there, there were believers who were walking away and it was getting really discouraging. Uh, Ephesus was an expensive place. It was a hard place to live in. It's a lot like Los Angeles. It's a, a town, Ephesus, that's filled with false teachers, social injustice, confusion. It's a hard place to minister. And Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him to stand firm, to hold down the embassy. And, and a part of his instruction in these pastoral epistles deals with the leaders in the embassy, namely the pastors. So we move to talk about pastors. It is Pastor Appreciation Month, and so it's, it's sort of fitting on the last Sunday of the month we talk about pastors. For Timothy 3 deals with pastors. Please look at 1 Timothy, if you will. The opening chapters, 1 Timothy 1 and 2, you see of the difficulties in Ephesus, the challenges that they were facing. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
we read about the office of the pastor, and, and, and we read about uh, what it's supposed to look like. He starts the chapter saying, it's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. The work of the overseer. By the way, the word overseer is a Greek word that is used interchangeably for our word pastor. If I could draw your attention up here just for a moment, we have five distinct terms in the New Testament that are used for pastors. The first is presbytos, the second is episkopos, the third is poiomen, we have kerukes and didaskalos. These are all used interchangeably to describe the one uh, office of pastor. Uh, sometimes it's translated into English as elder, sometimes it's translated as overseer, poiomen gets translated as pastor or shepherd, kerukes, a preacher, didaskalos, a teacher. These are all used interchangeably for this position. So there is one position that's given to the embassy called the, the pastor. And the, the pastors of the embassies are supposed to look after the, the affairs of the embassy. They've been placed there by God to help keep the thing on mission uh, in, in the foreign land of the earth representing uh, the kingdom that is yet to come. The office of the elder is not a solo position. Churches are supposed to have several who bear this position together and carry this leadership position. There's no hierarchy in it either. So we don't have bishops, we don't have archbishops, cardinals, or you know, uh, executive pastors, or senior pastors. There's no hierarchy. The, the term senior pastor is actually quite common in evangelical circles today, but it's conspicuously missing from the Bible. No one is ever called senior pastor inside of the Bible. In fact, the term that gets closest to senior pastor in the Bible is chief elder, and it is applied by Peter to only Jesus. So in our church, we always say that Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. He's, he's in charge here. It's Pastor Appreciation Month. He's the one we appreciate the greatest. He's the one who's in control. He's the one who is the head of his church. He, he's, he's the one who has set up his embassy, and we give him praise. The pastors in the embassy are his under-shepherds. We're here to do his bidding and his work and to follow what he has laid out in his word. It is a trustworthy statement, it says. If you aspire to the office, so this is an office. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Earlier we saw Demas and others who are going off mission because they're concerned with uh, comfort. They're concerned with Easy Street. They're, they're chasing after money and other things. Uh, you need to have leaders who aren't going to do that. You need to have leaders who are, who, are, who are marked by the fruits of the Spirit. It is worth pausing to uh, tackle what might be a pink elephant for some. You'll notice that in the qualifications here for pastors in the church, all of the qualifications are masculine. If any man aspires to the office of, of overseer, it is fine work he desires to do. And as you continue reading the qualifications, they're, they're masculine. He must, he must, he must. This isn't politically correct today uh, to, to, to suggest that men should be leading. In fact, it's, it's gone even worse than the idea of men leading. Now gender itself is, is apparently uh, controversial. To say that we have boys and girls and men and women is all of a sudden controversial. And uh, I mean, it's, it's, we are living in a strange world, folks. It is, it is strange. 
And so, so while I understand that in our culture this will be politically incorrect to say that the men should be pastors in the church, Paul himself understands this, the Word understands this, because the church is a model of the home. And in the home, men are supposed to be leading. In fact, that wouldn't be controversial if men actually did it well. I understand part of the political incorrectness is many families have been led poorly by men in them. And, and many women have unfortunately had to, had to carry their families through because the men weren't. But we are called as men to lead in our families and to lead in the church. Look at where we left off in verse 4. He must be one who manages his, his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? You want a position at the embassy? But look at your life. Look at your family. Look at your kids. Look at how you treat them. Look at how you lead them. If we compare this character list here, we find a very challenging list. But keep in mind, these aren't special criteria for special Christians. These are basic criteria for all Christians. And hence, these are what we demand of our leaders in the church. If you want to lead the church, you need to be excelling in the basics. We can compare this uh, list to Paul's writing in 1 Timothy and Titus, and Peter talks about this as well. And it's quite the extensive list of morality that we want to see in pastors in the church. We live in a culture with people in leadership positions who don't meet these. We have politicians and powers who are immoral, and we still elect them and empower them. This cannot happen in the embassy of Christ. Our mission is far too important. That said, the mission in morality is, is for all of us. We are, the, we are the priesthood together. But the job of the pastor priests among us is to point us to the Word, point us to Christ, and help us carry out our shared responsibilities in the embassy. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul says that God gave pastors and teachers to His church, and I quote, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So my job as a pastor in this church is really to equip you to be ambassadors of this embassy, Delray Church, in the city of Los Angeles. I'm, I'm partnering with you, which brings us to the next point, uh, speaking of partners, I'm partnering with you in this end. To help pastors in this end, in the scriptures, we have uh, another role in the church that's known as the diaconate. Elders have deacons who work alongside them. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 in front of you in verse 8. It says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These men must first be tested, and they serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. The, the, again, another leadership position under the pastors, the, the, the helping partners of the pastors or the diaconate, and as well, we, we expect to see this, 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 this morality and this spirituality in their lives. We're, we're, we're supposed to be serving and representing this glorious kingdom that is to come, that is holy. We should be marked by this. And together, the partners and the pastors work to equip the people, the membership. So these pastoral epistles are filled with instructions to the church to say, look, carry on, press on. Are you discouraged? Are you tired? Are you self-loathing and focus too much on yourself and what you have or don't have? Get your eyes off of all of that and see the blessed calling that you have been given to be a part of, of an embassy. 
It, it's, I'm sharing with a brother in the church who served on an embassy overseas. Like, how cool is that? Oh, man, it was awesome. It's like the coolest thing to be in a foreign land representing your, your country. How much more for us to represent our king and our country that is to come? What do we do in the meantime? Well, the offices and the order are in a rhythm of bringing the embassy and the ordinances. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in the case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you instructions for, you know, what the embassy is supposed to be doing. Verse 16, he makes reference to the common confession. Uh, that is the teaching and what they profess, which brings us to the ordinances of the church, the rites, the rituals that God has given us to do at the embassy. And the first one is the word declared. You've got a common confession. You've got scripture. You're, you, the, the embassy is supposed to gather and place a primacy on the word of God. The Apostle Paul places huge premium on preaching. He, he's, a, he's a preacher. He's an apostle. He's also a preacher. We see in texts like 2 Timothy 1.11, he says, I was appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. In 1 Timothy, you have in front of you, chapter 2, verse 7, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. And what does he say in 1 Timothy 2.6? I'm telling the truth, a teacher. Like, this is important. This is a premium. This is, this is what the embassy is supposed to be about. They emphasize the word declared. They emphasize the word displayed. We see in the beginning of the book of Acts when the church was gathering, we, we read this description of the church, that they received the word. You see this, Acts 2.41 in front of you? They received the word, they're, they're, they're baptized, and, and, and souls are being added to the church, and they're continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The church was, was all about having communion together, the breaking of bread. Celebrating baptism and communion, the ordinance is given to the church. Celebrating the preaching of the word and the, the reading of the word. Further here, emphasis is placed in Acts 2 on prayer, which leads to the third ordinance that we are to be about. You see, we are the word declared, preaching and scripture, the word displayed, baptism and communion, the word delighted, prayer and song. The early church is a singing and praying community. When you entered the, the embassy of the church, you're going to hear people singing. You're going to see people praying. You're going to see people uh, uh, serving and blessing one another. You're going to see the community, and you're going to see that community growing. And it's all centered around the Word. The word discipled. We're making disciples. Ambassadors are students. They're disciples. They're learners. Finally, in terms of the ordinances for the church, the word distributed. Evangelism through the spoken gospel. The purposes of the ordinances, the offices, and the order is all to fuel mission, to get the gospel out there. If you have 1 Timothy open, look at chapter 1, verse 11, and see how Paul describes the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel's been entrusted to Christ's ambassadors. What an honor. What a privilege. Okay, time is running out. Let me conclude this. So we've, we've, we've covered a lot of ground surveying these pastoral epistles. We started in Titus. We went to 2 Timothy and then 1 Timothy. We saw the order of the embassy, the offices of the embassy. We've seen the ordinances of the embassy. And now let's consider some outcomes to conclude. A given local church is like an embassy in a foreign hostile land stationed there. We are sent, we're sent here by King Jesus until his kingdom comes. 
And when he comes, may he find us faithfully serving as priest ambassadors, under fire, sacrificing everything that we can to make disciples in this place. The priorities we've discussed this morning, preaching, reading scripture, baptism, communion, prayer, song, teaching, community, evangelism, those are our priorities. We emphasize that because organizations have a phenomenon of what we call mission creep where an organization forgets what it's supposed to be about. Here's a common illustration. The YMCA, right? The, the Young Men's Christian Association. Now they typically just call it the Y. But, I mean, it's not even that. It's not young. Uh, you go to the local Y. There's a lot of old people there. there isn't, it's not men. There's a lot of ladies there. It's not Christian. Uh, you, you know, they should just call it the A. It's an association, but it's lost the Y, the M, and the C. How does that happen? Well, what one generation fails to pass on, the next generation forgets, and then the next generation hates. They'll literally fight against what it was originally founded on. And you could get a Google on, YMCA was started to be an evangelistic association to reach out to young men in a culture that, that was given over to booze and babes and bucks and dark stuff, and they wanted to reach those men and reclaim the culture. It was, it, we wanted to evangelize lost people and tell them about Jesus, and we'll use physical fitness and other things to do it. That's what it was founded for. I've never had anyone evangelize me at a YMCA. It's just not known for that. It's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. But that's what happens. One generation doesn't pass down the priorities. Here's, here's what we believe. Here's why we believe it. Here's why we're doing what we're doing. These are our priorities and passing it on. That's what making a disciple is. So if you don't, if you don't pass that down, they're not going to know. And then the next generation is going to go on in that ignorance. And eventually you get a generation who hates what it was about. We see this happening across our nation. People forget the, the heritage of this nation and the power of the gospel and the history of this place and churches closing their doors and all the rest because you fail to pass on what has been handed to you. And secondly, the pastors, by way of conclusion, pastors are an important part of the order. Hence, we have something like Pastor Appreciation Month. And, uh, you know, th those of you who wrote cards and did stuff, it's, it's a blessing. It, it's... It's a, it, is hard, it is hard work being a pastor. Amen, Tony? <laughs> I was waiting for you to belt out the amen uh, from the back there. But pastors, we read in uh, Hebrews 13, 17, uh, we're told to obey our leaders, submit to them, because what do they do? They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The work of a pastor is watching over the souls of the ambassadors in the embassy, constantly reminding us, this is what we are about. A faithful pastor will sound like a broken record. He's going to keep telling you the same thing. Same thing. In our culture, we're attracted to new. you know, And so uh, the charlatans who are always getting new words from God and stuff like that are very popular. The faithful pastor is going to keep telling you the same thing. And it's going to seek to pass that down. Priorities, pastors, passing. We pass it down. It's, Reform it's, it's Reformation Sunday. The Reformation is not over. In the Reformation, we protested the abuses of the church in the West. It's time for us to 
pick up that mantle and, and uh, continue afresh this Sunday in particular because it's Reformation Sunday and remember what it is that we're protesting because those problems haven't gone away. There is a great motto in the Reformation, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, which means the church reformed must always be reforming. So not only are we passing down, right, but we're also reforming as we do. And we have to reform because we're prone to get off course. We're prone to wander ourselves, and so we constantly need to be in a state of reforming ourselves. The final point on the outline is the passion. Our English word passion comes from a Latin word passio that means to suffer. A, a faithful embassy, a faithful church, a faithful Christian needs to learn to embrace suffering as a part of our mission. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 promises, and I quote, suffering, and I quote, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, they got those little Bibles, uh, those little, you know, the, claim the promises of God, you know. Well, I claim that promise, you know. I've never seen 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 claimed. I promise you, Paul says, the Word of God says, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. I invite you to claim that promise, whatever that colloquialism means, but claim that promise and take it on, because if you are living for the Lord, if you are a faithful ambassador, you, you, you will face this. In Timothy, we, we, we read this, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul's saying, hey, ambassadors, don't get involved in civilian affairs. You are enlisted men. You've been placed in his service. You don't have time for that civilian stuff. Spend your time focused on the work of the embassy. Spend your time in these ordinances, because he has ordained them for your discipleship and for uh, the gospel going out into the cities in which he has placed his embassies. With the final point of suffering before us, it brings us to the table, which is a picture of the suffering of our Lord for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. The table reminds us that someone else paid our way, that someone else did what we could not do. We owed a debt that we could not pay, and Christ paid it for us. A debt He did not know. He paid it for us. So as we respond to the message, we're now going to enter into a time of song to conclude the service. We'll sing, we'll come to the table, and we'll give thanks to God for this wonderful thing of the gospel. If you're new to church, and maybe someone brought you here, and you've Never heard this before. Let me make it plain as I close. We're sinners. We've rebelled against the God who's given us life. He has every prerogative to punish us for, us for it. And He will, because He's unlike corrupt judges in our culture today. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be hoodwinked. He punishes those who violate His law. And there's not a person in here who hasn't. And that's scary, and that's horrible. But here's the good news, what we call the gospel. Jesus, the historical Jesus, took the penalty for you. And Jesus was more than a man of history. He's God of eternity, God the Son. You see, God didn't send a third party to settle the problem. He came Himself, the God whose Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father sent His Son, and He took our place. And that is a gift that you can be set free from the penalty that you deserve. Further, you can be set free from the power of sin in this fallen world. He could set you free from it all. And 
and further, he gives you a position in his embassy to represent him and to share with others this good thing that he has done, this life-changing thing that he has done, and to invite others not only to be saved by him, but to worship him. And that's what we do as we come to the table. We worship him. We seek him in faith and repentance. So let's do that. Let's pray. Let's sing. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for your Son, O Father, who was sent for us. And your Spirit poured out into our hearts that we would see him. We come to the table now and we uh, picture him. We see the word displayed in the table of what he has done being broken for us and bleeding out for us. Lord, in, in, in blood there is life. And so we give thanks for the blood of Christ that gives us life. These symbols before us reminding us of new life and, and new birth. A meal that is to be shared by the people of your embassy. And so we come to, here together as Delray Church to come to this table and give thanks to you for, for saving us and making us a part of this church. Lord, do your thing in us now. Work through the word that has been preached to sanctify your people. Draw us to the table. And as we come, Lord, create in us a clean heart, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.